Oh, another sunny day and plenty going on on RTE Radio 1 today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Golf gets bashed a lot in the media. Okay. The four Irish golfers did not go. We all said no. Yeah. So yeah. we should, like, you know, Rory said no to 400 million. Wow. Shane said no to life-changing money. Myself and Darren, we didn't go. I was working in the University of Stirling. I was a passenger in a car that was crashed into and that's how I got my traumatic brain injury. As in the Constitution, the only requirements for being president are that you're 35, a natural born American, and that you've lived in the country for at least 14 years. Apart from that, in theory, you could be a serial killer and still run for president. And we'll start in the afternoon and on Liveline golf legend, Padraig Harrington. Padraig Harrington, Padraig, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you? But why are you glad you're not out in a golf course on a day like this? No, I've actually just come in from practising, oh, so uh, it's nice it's... to see a bit of sunshine. <laughs> and you know, on a day like this in Ireland, half the country wants to be on a golf course. So I appreciate you coming in and uh, talking to us. How are you keeping? I'm keeping well, very well, actually. Oh, that's good, that's good. Um, the, 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 we, we do the merger first, or the, when you, what did you call it, <laughs> sports washing? What do, as more information emerges, what do you think of the this... This, what, what time the tweet came out, I think, about 72 hours ago, but uh, 10 past three on June the 6th. The PGA Tour, yeah. DP World Tour and PIF, that's the Saudi uh, Public Investment Fund, announced a landmark agreement to unify men's professional sport. Were you surprised when you saw the tweet? Everybody was exceptionally surprised. It, it yeah. came from nowhere. What's interesting about it is, you know, obviously a lot of the talk has been about, oh, there's more money. The PGA Tour have gone to try and take more money. They, they're backtracking. It's a huge backtrack. It's a huge U-turn by the PGA Tour. And the likely reason is they were forced into it. You mm. know, there was a big lawsuit going on. Yeah. They were rumoured to be losing half their TV revenues. The PGA Tour were in, looks like they could have been in financial turmoil. And they were forced into acting now or leave it to a year's time and they'll be in a worse position. So it's not a question. There's not a single player on the PGA Tour that in any shape or form was looking for more money at this stage. Everybody who's left behind is exceptionally happy with where they were. So it's a complete shock to them. I don't think the PGA Tour, even though it might end up that there's mm. more money in the game, I don't think the PGA Tour were seeking that. They were worried about their own sustainability because they've actually stretched themselves so much trying to yeah. compete with Liv. Um, and uh, the Live Tour, as it's called, because they have so much money behind them, there was no stopping them. Is that what you think? Well, yeah, people thought that they'd go away and that yeah. it wasn't very competitive. But the two, with Brooks really winning the last major, yeah. put a yeah. lot of things to hang on a second. This thing could actually succeed. But I, I, it really is. This is a case of two We're going to court who were suing each other and neither wanted to get into that. Okay, and so, so somebody stepped in and said, right, hang on a second, we're not going to go to court. We're not go- we've got to settle this. And these are the terms that we don't fully know yet, but these are the terms they came up with to avoid what could have been catastrophic for the PGA Tour. And what did the Saudis get out of it, do you think, Parik? Is it, is it sports uh, well, they get two things. Yeah, OK. Well, look, yeah, look. The, the Saudis have bought Newcastle. Nobody stopped watching the Premiership. Yeah, yeah. Everybody still watched that. They, everybody watched the World Cup. You know, so if, if sports watching, unfortunately, does work. Investing mm. in things like this does work. There's, I guarantee you there's somebody in Newcastle who thinks 
more positively about Saudi Arabia now because they own the team. So it does work in that sense. And Saudi Arabia are free to invest in what they want to, unless somebody comes in and says, and says stops them, like a UN or somebody, they're free to do this. The fact is that they do have a lot of money, yeah. and if they take an interest in something, they, they can back it for a long time. Uh, they want to create... They actually, their goal is to be the hub of the Middle East. So they are actually trying yeah. to overtake Dubai and Abu Dhabi and be the center of business and tourism in the Middle East. That's really, their, their, their stated goal is not the world. Their stated goal is we want to be number one in the Middle East. And one of the controversial things I said in the tweet was, you know, hang on a second, we don't, like, as a positive, being included and not excluding somebody tends, and trade tends to change them. So okay. I've been going out to the, I've been going out to the Middle East for ooh, 25 years. You can't believe how much that has changed. Okay. I've been going to you, you could go like you can go to China, okay? Mm-hmm. China is one of the most authoritarian governments in yeah. the world. Yeah. You know, potentially they talk about wars with the US. Like you go to the cities in China, unbelievable cities. People buzzing around, the most capitalistic, the most western cities you can see. Like the like the shopping malls, I can't afford to shop in. Like it's just incredible. So eventually, all that is going to seep up to the power, and mm-hmm. and will change their society. It might take fifty years, and this is the same with Saudi Arabia. I'd I'd love to swing. I if I had a magic wand and I could go in and say, hey, look, we want you mm-hmm. to adhere to our, you know, to the norms of human rights that what we all consider to be completely normal. I'd wave that wand, but forcing them to do it would only make them backtrack they have to do it on their own terms which is you know we'd all love it to happen today but if somebody said in 25 years like we look back now at, at the, the mother and baby homes if somebody said in 25 years hey god look at saudi arabia look what it was like and look what it's now i don't know if that's acceptable to people that it would take 25 years for, for for women to get proper rights i just you know that's right just, I don't know if that's acceptable. We just can't wave a magic wand right now. And I'm look. The interesting thing about this, golf gets bashed a lot in, in the media. Okay. The four Irish golfers did not go. We all said no. Yeah. So yeah. we should like you know Rory said no to four hundred million. Wow. Shane said no to li- life changing money. Myself and Darren, we didn't go. And so, what does Liv get out of this? Live get to have a go at trying to run their league without interference. So there's been massive interference with Live. Everything that can be possibly done to stop Live succeeding has been tried, and it, it, clearly it's it's stuttered. And that's what they're going to get. They're going to get an opportunity without interference, and maybe their players will get an opportunity not feel like they're ostracised, and they'll see if it works. And you know who knows it will work because a lot of people don't like the idea of teams in golf. So. Who knows? But the the Saudi rep, the chairman of the the public investment fund, the Saudi Arabian uh, Yasamar Ramayan, he's the he's the new chairman of the PGA. They will have a veto uh, on who can invest in invest in the PGA. They, they so so the the three tours for the players seem to be as is. So there's no crossover of players. Yeah. There's nobody on the PGA tour has to go and play and live. There's nobody has to do anything okay. they don't want. That's it. There's a separate entity that all these things are going to be put into that's for future investments. Now, at the current, to start it off, the PJ Tour are going to put, not the Tour into it, but they're going to put their 
media rights into it and something else. The European Tour putting their media rights into it uh, and Labour putting their media rights in. And for that, Labour are going to put money in as well mm-hmm. to equalise it. That that money, I assume, is going to be used as some sort of equalisation payment, probably to subsidise the PJ Tour for their massive loss of TV revenue. Uh, possible massive loss of TV revenue. So it's going to equalise out and then everybody will be do your own thing. But can bridges be mended, Parik? You know the animus, the animosity that was generated. Rory, yeah, Rory you know, McElroy saying, and Tiger, of course, saying that, that they feel like sacrificial lambs, pardon the pun, um, on yeah, all of this. Rory fell out with Sergio Garcia, didn't he? Who was groomsman at his wedding. Yeah, uh, well, oh. I don't think, from what I've read, like Rory said, some did a lovely press conference, I felt, the other day, spoke okay. really well. And the quotes that came out were, were so harsh. In You know, when you line up a quote out of a mm-hmm. press conference, and, and, it, and it stoked the fires of division. I have found individually, we don't have the division. So when I, okay. you know, uh, I have a lot of Ryder Cup, my Ryder Cup players, five of them, I think, went. So uh, they're my players for life. Okay. You know, they, they so I, I'm not, I'm friends with them. I'm not going to, in any shape or form, not be friends with those guys. I made my decision. They made their decision. It's up to them. They didn't do anything that's not legal. So why should I judge what they think is right or wrong? That's not that's not not for me. But I will say that I think on the ground players can get on and 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 that mm-hmm. in a bigger picture when the media gets involved and when groups get involved, that's when all of a sudden you do get the vision. And and you at the moment both the PJ Tour are, are, are spinning their side of it and and the the live side are yeah, spinning their yeah. side and. And the players in the middle don't know where to, we don't know what's going on. We have no, okay. we 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 of course we know a little bit what's going on, but we have no like everything is guesswork. Why why like why did the PGA backtrack so much yeah. on this when there was no financial reason? Like there was no player in in any shape or form and say, hey, we need to be playing for bigger prize funds. Like we're we're all sitting there going, oh my god, the money we're playing. How 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 did we get to here? So okay. nobody was okay. pushing the tour. Yeah. the tour. The tour could only have done this like any other hostile challenger comes in. They're the incumbent. And the tour obviously got to a situation that, you know, if we let this run any longer, we're actually going mm-hmm. to go into a, 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 a problem area, a, an area that they're going to actually, you know, they, pro- they probably just stretch themselves too, too, too thin. And was it? would you characterise it as a hostile reverse takeover then? And now you've now. No, I, I, I think look, they, they, they live or PIF. Mm-hmm. They got, you know, they obviously didn't want to to be deposed either and come or whatever they've been comes out in court, but they got inclusion in golf. They yeah, want yeah. to okay. make so they want Saudi Arabia to be a golf destination. I want it to be a like a biking destination. I, I've never been to Saudi Arabia, so. For, I, I don't know, but somebody says, you know, there are, are we think, we all think that the Middle East is a desert, but clearly Saudi Arabia has some unbelievable, mm-hmm. uh, beautiful mountain areas and that, and they want it to be a destination for, in the Middle East, for people to go to. And golf has to be part of that. But it and will, if it happens, it will change their culture. It changed Dubai's culture. It changed the Middle East's culture. So is it all about the money? So Abba said it all, money, money, money. Yeah, you know, they got there because they have bigger yeah. power. But it's, it, I think with the PGA Tour, it's the opposite. 
instead of them trying to yeah. get more money, they were trying not to lose where they were at and be in a worse position down the road. But given, I know you made the mother, the the, the mother and baby homes uh, analogy, and we've nothing to be proud of there as a, as a country. We have, uh, in every sense, tried to atone for it. But the the situation for women in Saudi at the minute is unbelievable. The situation yeah. for for people who are gay is shocking. Isn't it incredible that in this in this day and age that it could be like that? Like nobody can defend that. Nobody could. But but let's 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 hope that it changes. Let's okay. hope it changes as quick as possible. Let's hope that pressure from the UN uh, calling them out. Let's hope that inclusion. Uh, and I guarantee it, individually, you know, when you meet people mm. individually and they, and they mix and they get out, you know, individually people change. And then as they change, clearly that will move up the line and all of a sudden you'll have cultural change. And then, you know, I assume governments will follow after that. So, you know, maybe... It, there's no stopping, you know, there is no stopping cultural change because the internet is there. Yeah, everybody can the see, in, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, everybody can see. And I, I know, I know the problem in, in Saudi Arabia, clearly there's a woman in prison for tweeting. Yeah. Like, uh, like that's just... Bloggers. In, in, in our, bloggers in our world... Bloggers are Bloggers, yeah, if you like, criticise to say. Porig, we had, we had a call about five minutes ago from someone saying I'm doing I'm I'm, I'm doing my I'm doing the leaving cert okay yeah. and he, I don't know whether it's one of your boys I don't know what age your, your boys are have, have you got oh, a leaving no. cert in the house I hope oh, not junior cert junior, junior cert okay how's that going are you okay everything okay and uh, so I think it's, yeah, it's so far. Yeah, okay. okay. Now, this man was saying that he wanted to, his name is Tommy Morris, but he's not, um, I thought he was doing his leave and said, no, he's a, he's a, an examiner, an invigilator, right? Okay. And so he's, he's gone in to, to, he had to run in there. But he wanted to say, he contacted you years ago. Would you come and see somebody in an intensive care unit who was terminally ill, a 16-year-old? And the point you wanted, by the way, you 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 didn't get publicity because you didn't want publicity. You didn't seek publicity. You came to the intensive care unit at relatively short notice. You spent an hour with the child and then you kept in touch with the young teenager, 16, 16 year old. He just wanted to uh, get that on the record of your your decency in public and uh, in private. Did You must have done well in your maths and the leaving. Did you, you became, did you, did you qualify as an accountant, Parik? I passed my exams, oh, well. so I've, I've never, oh, ne- well. never attained my, my, my articles. And did, did, uh, did you? How'd you do in maths in your leaving? In you... Maths would have been my e- easiest subject, but I wasn't. Uh, I was more into sport than anything. Don't else. tell me uh, now, Parig. Don't tell me you got a. Mo- you got a in honors mom- maths in your leaving. No, my mother. Okay. And my mother's going to kill me. She's listening. <laughs> this. She ran a bookmakers. <laughs> You know, okay. she managed yeah, to yeah, book brilliant, makers. brilliant. But back at, back in the eighties, okay, and she could sit there, and when the when the, the assistant at the front was typing in the the Yankee, the you know the multiple yeah, bets, yeah, yeah, she 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 would work it out in her head behind her, wow, and would know and would know how to. She would like a six different bets and combinations. My mum could work out in her head. So we in my family, numbers. We've never been scared of numbers. We 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 just. It's we've been brought up that just numbers now, not yeah, not the complicated math yeah. math stuff of equations and things. So and would you do it's, it, a good role model? It's incredible, and um, it's a, what an incredible skill. And would you do Sudoku? Would you still be interested in numbers? 
I got bored with Sudoku. You what? You get bored with it? Well, it's it's, it's Sudoku is a is a is a routine. It's it's just well, it's dice and slice. Just keep dicing and slicing. Okay. To be honest, the, the annoying thing about the the annoying thing about Sudoku, if you were doing a race, you would actually predict a number and go and see if it's right and go backwards because that's quicker than actually trying to really, really logically work it out. So I would, if you produce the difficult Sudoku, I'd sit down and love to try and do it. But I, I'm not going to sit and do ten Sudoku. And it's yeah, no, I've no interest. And how do you relax? I play Clash of Clans. I play Clash of Clans. You play what? It's a game. I can play a game called Clash of Clans. On Clash of Clans. Clash of Clans. Yeah. One one of these war. You know, you build up. Yeah, my youngest. My youngest play them. Yeah. Yeah, my kid started (laughs) me off, and I'm like, I'm absolute. I'm literally. If anybody plays it, I maxed everything out at this stage. I have a few walls to go, and if I get to the end of it. I'm going to stop. If I actually finish it, I'm stopping because it takes hours every day. Barry Harrington from The Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, the second indictment of Donald Trump. First this morning, the former US President Donald Trump has been charged over his handling of classified documents after he left the White House. It's his second indictment, the first ever federal indictment of a former president. And of course, this all comes as he campaigns to become the Republican candidate once again in 2024. Marion McKeown is the US correspondent with The Business Post. Thanks for speaking to us, Marion. Hello, Claire. How are you? Will you talk us through what we know of these charges and how this news emerged? Right. Well, the news emerged uh, this evening. Uh, Donald Trump got a phone call. He he moves to Bedminster, New Jersey for the summer. It gets a little hot down in Florida, although I suspect it's gotten hotter since he moved there. Um, he uh, got a phone call from one of his lawyers at seven o'clock uh, to Bedminster telling him that he had been indicted and that there were seven separate charges on the indictment. Now, that is all that his lawyers know at the moment, and that's all that Trump knows at the moment. Uh, The indictment will be read out in full on Tuesday uh, in a Miami federal courtroom at three o'clock. That's when it's scheduled for. Now, it's possible that in the meantime, the federal prosecutors and Trump's lawyers may come to an agreement where they will hand them the full indictment. But I think what happened then, and indeed it was predictable, Claire, that Trump decided he was immediately going to control this narrative. So within 20 minutes of finding out, the Department of Justice had said absolutely nothing. Uh, he he announced it in a three-part post on Truth Social that he had been indicted. And again, you know, in a very dramatic, classic Trump form. And, and of course, it, it was partly controlling the narrative, partly using it as a demand for more uh, funding, for more online donations. And he did more or less exactly what he did with Alvin Bragg in New York, the district attorney there, when he announced that he was going to be arrested. And, you know, and it, it's, it means now that the Department of Justice, which doesn't really ever and shouldn't deal with its cases in public and shouldn't be playing a media game, but that it's sort of scrambling now because, as I 
said, Trump has put this out there. The whole of America is pretty much in uproar. Kevin McCarthy came out and made a statement which was riddled with falsehoods, claiming that Joe Biden had indicted Donald Trump, which even a five-year-old in America would know is impossible and untrue. And so it's becoming, there are two battles here. One is a legal battle and one is a political battle. And right now it's the political battle that is being fought. And given that he got out with that statement last night, as you said, and there'll be nothing now from the Department of Justice until Tuesday. Do you think the department might be tempted to come out and say something to try and wrestle back control in some way? Well, you know, it's interesting. Jack Smith, now I've never come across him, but I I know two former federal prosecutors who I know quite well who have, and they say, look, he's pretty well unflappable, that he's just very, very focused, very principled, and he's not going to be bounced into doing anything he doesn't want to do. They say that if he didn't believe he had a really strong case, he wouldn't have indicted Trump. And there was has always been a thing in the Department of Justice where successive attorney generals have said, let the indictment speak for itself. We're not going to engage in, in PR games and spin games. But this is of such public importance. This is the first time, you know, the the Alvin Bragg case was shocking because, of course, it was salacious. It, it involved, you know, a porn actress. It involved a Playboy model. It involved like the, it, it was, you know, but it was state criminal financial charges. They're relatively low lying. And the most that Trump would have spent in prison, even if convicted of all of them, would have been a maximum of four years and much more likely he would receive no prison time at all. And nor would anybody else indeed in that situation but with this this is really serious because this is a former president on a federal charge on you know a, a re, one of the most serious charges for a president saying that he mishandled um top secret documents uh, and you know the, the charge includes conspiracy it includes the mishandling it includes violation of the uh, espionage act it includes obstruction charges you know it really doesn't get a lot more serious than that if you're a former president uh, and in terms terms of a potential jail sentence, uh, it could be uh, 30 years for some charges and 20 for others. So, I mean, in theory, up to 50 years, but more likely uh, if he saw a jail sentence at all, it would be at, at the lower end. But he could, in theory, receive up to 30 years in prison. Marion, Mar- Mar- none yeah. of that. The, the fact that he yeah. is uh, going to be charged, even if he is convicted, even if he is in jail, he can still run for president, can't he? Well, this is there is a dispute about that, and it really depends on the constitutional lawyer you speak to. There is a theory that because in the Espionage Act there is a section that says any official who mishandles um, public documents or top secret documents will be barred from ever holding a federal office after that. Now, would that include a president? We don't know because in the Constitution the only requirements for being a president are that you're 35, a natural-born American, and that you've lived in the country for at least 14 years. Apart from that, in theory, you could be a serial killer and still run for president. Marion McKeown from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Catherine Thomas was trying to unravel the mysteries of the Irish cuckoo. Now, we all know what a cuckoo sounds like. And in school, sure, we learned all about them laying eggs into other birds' nests and they have quite the reputation. But we spotted an exciting new project, tracking Irish cuckoos. And the plan is to try and solve the mystery of where exactly these birds go during the winter months. It's the first time ever that Irish cuckoos have been tracked. And now you can actually follow their journey online. So to find out more, I'm joined by Sam Bailey, a conservation ranger with the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Hey, Sam, how you doing? 
Very good, very good. Thank you very much. Good, good. So British cuckoos have been tracked before, but never Irish cuckoos. That's right, that's right. It's uh, something that's been going on for a number of years in Britain by the British Trust for Ornithology um, and uh, and something we definitely wanted to get a piece of the action of. OK, so how does the tracking actually work? So um, uh, there's a small tag. It's uh, about uh, five grams in weight, which is like a little bit like a, a backpack that is uh, uh, put onto the bird uh, with a tiny air, an aerial that sort of comes off the back of it. Um, and the backpack has got, as I say, it's five grams. It's absolutely tiny. And it's got a series of solar panels on the back. Uh, and that is you know, sort of directing a signal up to satellite on a regular basis. So we can follow their movement, their exact movement for effectively the rest of their lives. OK. And so how many of these little mini backpacks have you put on? the? How many birds are you tracking? So we're tracking four. Okay. Uh, three that were tagged in Killarney National Park and one in the Borough National Park. Um, and we're hoping to see, find out their sort of their full migration south. Um, we're, you know, we're presuming they're going to Africa, um, where just the same, similar to where the British ones go. Um, and then their journey back, but their routes, their destiny, you know, how they get there, what they you know, go through, how long it takes them. Mm. There's a lot of unknowns. OK, so as we said, this has never been done before. And you've actually given the four birds you've tra- uh, tracked, you've given them names. Torque, Cores, KP and Karen. That's right, that's right. So uh, Torque, Cores and Karen uh, were uh, all paid for by the National Parks and Wildlife Service, the TAGs. Uh, whereas KP was a, a private donor to the British Trust for Ornithology, who we're who we're working with on this project. Okay, and they're all blokes, right? That's right. They are. <laughs> they're all male cuckoos. That's true. And why is that? Uh, it's basically because that, um, male cuckoos are bigger than females, oh, okay. uh, and because of the size of the tag, uh, there's a there's a, a welfare issue if you were to you know uh, have too big a tag on too smaller bird. Okay. Um, so, you know, obviously we want the birds to be healthy. We want them to not be, um, uh, to go about their daily sort of normal, natural life, or otherwise it would be absolutely pointless. And obviously there'd be a welfare issue for the birds. So it's only only the males which are big enough to take these uh, the, these tags. We're hoping at some point in the future that smaller tags might be uh, developed, uh, might be able to be used but currently we're on these ones, so. Okay, so you're expecting them to head from here. Like, where are the, the, you're tracking them already? So they've left Killarney, and where have they where have they gone to so far? Well, uh, at the moment, I mean, uh, we we tagged them out in the middle of May, and they pretty much spent the same, you know, sort of stayed in the same general location. Mm-hmm. So three were in in Killarney, three around the Byron National Park. And um, it was only actually the bank holiday weekend that two from Kalani started to do something different. So already two of them, um, uh, one has, is now in Clonmel in Tipperary. Uh, and the other one is slightly weird in that it went to down to the coast in East Cork. Uh, well, and you're then not nowhere better than East Cork on a bank holiday Limerick. weekend. Well, exactly. The coast <laughs> is brilliant. So. <laughs> Sam Bailey with Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. 
And on Today with Claire Byrne, the challenges for people who need rehabilitation services and younger people being sent to nursing homes. Evelyn O'Rourke was looking into the issue in the morning. A few weeks ago here on the show, we brought you an interview with Martina Cox, who's wife of Liverpool fan Sean. And during the conversation, she explained that while Sean is receiving excellent rehabilitation care and supports, much of this is from accessing services pri- privately. And she reiterated the enormous challenges facing people who need rehab and who need more help. And those gaps were then further highlighted in front of the Oireachtas Health Committee. Well, Evelyn O'Rourke has been finding out more about the services on offer to this vulnerable group and Evelyn is here now. Hi Evelyn. Good morning Claire. So really stark figures were shared at that presentation at the committee and this comes after the confirmation. Hundreds of people under the age of 65 requiring care. They're confined to nursing homes. Yeah Claire. I mean once you start talking to anybody caught up in this situation it really becomes clear so quickly that there are gaps in services for people requiring your rehabilitation and as you say when we spoke to Martina Cox she said that people dealing with injuries like Sean are constantly doing this battle that you hear about for services. Then a few weeks later the Oireachtas Health Committee advocates told the members there that 85% of neurological patients do not have access to a community neurorehabilitation team and this against the backdrop of the Ombudsman report that told us about this figure and it's gone down a little bit that around 1,200 people under the age of 65 are living in nursing homes following sudden ill health and they believed maybe that their placement would be temporary but they find themselves kind of stuck there. And you've been speaking to some of those people who very unfortunately experienced a life-changing brain injury and they've outlined to you the endless challenges they face to get rehab services. So you're going to introduce us now first to Rosie, Rosie Mangan. Oh, Rosie's wonderful, really impressive woman. She's a scientist, she specialised in zoology and she was travelling the world with her now fiancé Connor for years. And then she got a research job in Stirling University in Scotland. She was assigned to a really exciting research opportunity in Brazil. But tragically, while she was there, Claire, she had a car crash and that has left her really with a life-changing brain injury and she's a wheelchair user now. She relies mainly on her right side of her body to steer the chair but she is so passionate and she is a real advocate for young people under 65 who are languishing as she says in nursing homes due to this lack really. One of the the elements is this lack of community care and she describes their situation really as a human rights violation. So I went to visit Rosie. I was very lucky to meet her in the beautiful garden of her family home in Offaly where she now lives with her parents and her partner Connor. But here Rosie tells us a little more. We're in Dangan County Offaly. A beautiful little town along the Grand Canal beautiful day today. This is such a peaceful place to live. Yeah, I mean I love being on the country. You live here with your lovely fiancé Connor, <laughs> he's coming out here at the water and everything and you've loads of family around you here We live with my mum and dad and then my sister Helen and her fiancé and their two kids Noah and Nathan just live five minute walk away I'm going to ask you to go back and tell me a little bit about your life before all this happened to you Rosie. I would have gone to a lot of concerts because I'm a big music fan, lots of festivals and I would have travelled a lot around the world. Myself and Connor were in India and Nepal shortly after we finished our postgraduates. A lovely life, lots of adventure. And then your travels led you to South America and that's where this terrible accident happened. Yeah. I was working in the University of Stirling. I was a passenger in a car that was crashed into and that's how I got my traumatic brain injury. That was in November 2019. Put into a medically induced coma, which I was in for about six weeks. And then I got repatriated back to Ireland. And I slowly woke up in the matter. I was making kind of hand signals. And then eventually I start speaking. I had to learn to eat again. I was waiting to get into NRH in March 2020. And that's when COVID kicked off. So there was a suggestion that I would go to a nursing home. What age were you then? I was 35. 
a completely inappropriate place for a young woman like myself or any young person. I'm very lucky that Connor is a nurse, my mum is a nurse, and my sister Helen is a nurse. They refused. They were like, no, no, I would have made no progress. And unfortunately, that is the case for so many people in Ireland. Do you think that if Connor wasn't a nurse and your mum and, you know, you didn't have that immediate nursing support, that you may have had to just go to that nursing home? I know from meeting other members of the brain injury community, their family members weren't in the in-no situation and their families are left a dogged fight to try and get them out of it. Well, that's Rosie there. Then Evelyn also went to the head office of Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. I wanted to find out more, I suppose, with the national picture, you know, for people like Rosie. So I went out there to meet up with Barbara O'Connell, who's the CEO of Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. Now, she's got a fascinating story because she explained that she and her husband actually first set up this charity 23 years ago when her own brother Peter had an accident and faced being put into a nursing home when he was young. So since then, they founded Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. Their service is very high in demand. The situation is tough for families. And they are currently advocating for specialist HSE case managers to be assigned across the country to help people access and manage their care. So here, Barbara O'Connell outlines the challenges here in Ireland. I have a brother with an acquired brain injury and I was working in the National Rehabilitation Hospital at the time as an occupational therapist and the only place for him was a nursing home. Myself and my husband felt very strongly that he, he had so much ability to live his life. So we set up the first residential house for people with brain injury and Peter was the first person there. And to be honest with you, he just went from sleeping, sitting, doing nothing in a nursing home to then actually going out and about on his own eventually after about six months and living a really, really good quality of life. So that was in 2000. And then as co-founders, I then became the chief executive and started to try and get funding and make agreements with the HSE that we would now provide specialist training and specialist services for people with a brain injury because we could prove that with the right rehabilitation and the right intervention you can make a massive difference to people's lives and and unfortunately still now that's my biggest frustration people are being put into nursing homes because the full pathways are not in place. You're saying in 2000 there was no other option. In the 23 years since culturally has it changed? Is there more political will around it? Do people understand more? Certainly as Acquired Brain Injury Ireland you know we've got places where people can go residentially. We've shown that you can go there for six months and we can get you back you know to a fairly good reasonable where your life was like before and we've got all of the steps in place but not in every HSE area there are parts of the country where you can get a very good service but there are other parts of the country where you can't you know the pathway should be something terrible has happened to you that you know they save your life in the most wonderful way and then like there's nothing for some people or they have to wait a year or two years to get into the National Rehabilitation Hospital because there's so few places or you could end up in a nursing home or you're with families who are having to cope with this new person with all of these challenges without any training and I suppose what we have shown it doesn't have to be that way we can intervene very early on and people can rebuild their lives it may not be the same life they had before but it's a meaningful life we've taken people from nursing homes who've gone back to college like it's it's that stark that's Barbara there. And another story that you came across, this involves another young man who did spend time in a nursing home after his accident. And he's critical of the need for younger people to be placed in homes at all. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this became a familiar enough story once I got talking to people in the sector. And in Jimmy's case, Claire, he was a carpenter. He was working in France. He had a simple fall, but the impact of it has changed his life. And he was hospitalised first, much like Rosie there, then moved into rehab and then into a nursing home in his 40s. And look, he says he's grateful now that he was moved out 
visit that home. He receives great support from Acquired Brain Injury Ireland and the Sligo service there. He lives independently now in an apartment, but he's also an advocate for services and giving a voice to young people stuck in, as he describes it, inappropriate care settings. And he says he got the right supports in the end and that everybody deserves this. So here Jimmy tells me a little more about his story, how he's coped, starting with describing the kind of activities that he enjoyed before his accident. Basketball, Mm -hmm. badminton, indoor soccer, boxing. Then I had a head injury. I was out drinking. And you were coming out the door of the pub and your co-worker came along. Yes, he tapped me on the shoulder, asked for a cigarette. I put my hand in the inside pocket of my jacket. My feet got locked and I took a tumble straight down. Hit my head on the top step. I was rushed to hospital and I was in an induced coma for six weeks. I was flown back to Ireland. I went to the National Rehab Hospital and learned to walk again. Some people are sent to nursing homes. Is that something that happened to you? Yes, I was sent to one. I was there for six months. I didn't like it very much, and I was putting it quite politely. Well, that's Jimmy talking to Evelyn O'Rourke from Today with Claire Barron. And in the morning, a rambling tale of finding your truth and feeling free and open about who you are. TV producer and presenter Simon Atkins was Ryan Tuberty's guest. Your story takes us kind of, actually it's all around the world. Yeah. We, we could begin here, we could go to London, we could go to Castle Bar, or we could go further field. I'm going to go further field, even right. more so, to your dad. Yes, Tell yes. me about him and, and his beginnings. My dad is Burmese, and he was raised, he actually was born in London, but he was raised in Burma with his five siblings. So my granny's actually is Burmese, and my, my granddad is Scottish. So they met over in Burma during the World War. And over there, my granny had all of her kids, but they had to leave Burma during the rising. So this is probably back in the 60s. My granny sent her kids one by one out of Burma, never to come back. My dad actually was born in in the UK. Yes. But then he went back to Burma with granny and he was raised in Burma until he was 18. And... My granny had all of the family sent out of Burma because of the rising where my dad actually was put in prison for looking too westernised. She was at a festival. And uh, after that, my granny had her uncle pawn his watch to get my dad out of prison. And then my granny made the decision shortly after that to, to leave Burma and to settle in the UK. I always think Burma is a very troubled country, don't yeah. you? Politically with the military and then... Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot going on, but there was, you know, so obviously that happened years ago. And then for the last maybe five, five or six years, yeah. you could travel into Burma and you could go and see Burma. But now it's back under the military regime and it's back under the junta. So you can't actually travel in Burma anymore. So my dad has never been back to Burma since. Has he? Since he was a kid. Have He's you ever been, been to visit so Burma? So I've never actually been. And that is yeah. the one really sad thing that I wish I'd done because some of my family have been back but I really wanted to bring my dad back because yeah. he'd not been there since he was 18 and that's, you know, he just turned 70 at the weekend. Happy birthday, Dad. Happy, happy belated <laughs> birthday to your dad but also... He's a young man at 70, so there'll, there'll be plenty of time, hopefully, if they sort their hopefully. stuff out over there to allow you, because that would be such a meaningful, yes. a profound visit to that country for father and son yeah. to go there, because you carry that Burmese heritage in you, as you know, and 
your father obviously would would be very proud of his Burmese yeah. roots and and his. I mother. was actually trying to do a documentary about it. That's oh. why I was kind of like waiting yeah. to kind of like do that and kind of like film it all. But I think it'd be amazing just to bring him back to the village where he grew up yeah, to see sure. the school that my granny used to like teach out of, and, and also the school that he went to, and and even the house, the house that they left, they left all of their their. Their, their family, their wealth, they left everything behind and they travelled um, on a boat like for a month uh, across to the UK and they could only bring one piece of jewellery and a bag of clothes and that was it. Right. That's what they landed in the UK with and that's how they, you know, they so they, they essentially start from scratch. So we've got Scotland, we've got London, we've got Burma. Uh, so let's go to Castlebar. How do we get there? So I'm from... The, the west coast of Castlebar. That's where I was. Um, I was not born and raised. I was actually born in London, but yes. my parents made the decision to move back to the west of Ireland um, when I was six months old. So two of us were born in London and two of us were born in uh, Castlebar. Now, mum and dad met in London. In London. Your mum being from? From Castlebar. That makes the sense now. Yeah. So she was like, she's an O'Malley. They ran the, the local pub in, in Castlebar and um, she always had, you know, bigger dreams of like, uh, you know, doing something other than, you know, staying in Castlebar and running a pub. So she headed off to London to train as a nurse. Meanwhile, dad had come from Burma and he was training as um, an accountant and they met at a dance. And in, so that would have been in their early, late teens, early 20s. And um, they fell madly in love, had two kids. And then they were like, we need to get out of London because we can't afford to live here. And then the rest, I guess, was history. They they went back to the west of Ireland and uh, they set up a transport company. My grandparents also kind of had a a taxi service company as well as running the pub. They were kind of quite entrepreneurial. Yeah. So uh, Grafters. Grafters. Yeah, real. That's real hard work stuff. Well, I mean, you know, like like most Irish parents, I think, you know, it's kind of like with, with having like four kids yeah. back then and you're starting a company you know you've got to just put the head down and get the job done and, and bring in bring in the bacon and Simon spoke about plans after leaving CERT so I remember going up to UCD when I was in transition year and my friend was she was in university up there and she invited me up for the week and from the second I stepped into UCD I was like this is exactly where I want to go to uni. So I always knew that I wanted to be in the Bright Lights of Dublin. I never really knew what I wanted to do. I had like an interest in the sciences and um, I knew I wanted to go to UCD. So I did everything in my power to get into that uni and I ended up studying science, general science in first year, which then led on to computer science. Had you any interest in it? Absolutely No interest in computer science <laughs> at all. I don't know what. So, so listen. It was the age, right, where it was like the boom, the kind of like you know yeah. everyone was getting tech, some tech, kind tech, of tech, yeah, tech, yeah. tech. And I was like, right, okay. I liked biology and chemistry in school, but I quickly learned I did not want to be in a lab after first year. So I was like, let's go down the computer science route. Everyone else seems to be doing it, mm. um, and uh, sure, I'll give it a shot. But like, I remember cramming the last year of uni, going like, I have no clue about this course I I scraped a 2-1 but it was a lot of kind of like you know like like just cramming and, and, yeah. and, and, and studying late into the night but look you know uni is all about like just What did you I mean did you were you harbouring in a parallel universe another dream and an ambition that you hadn't quite acknowledged is that what was happening? I, I kind of think I always knew I was going to do something creative yeah. 
and something that was kind of to do with, you know, either like public speaking or like I, I did a lot of speech and drama when I was in school and kind of like acting and um, public speaking. And um, I was a classically trained flautist as well. So like the, that whole creative kind of like thing was always there. But I never really knew that you could, you know, make a career out of it. Yes, yeah. Until I finished uni and then I went travelling for a year and a half. And after coming back and getting a job in the bank for two years, I was like, right, this is definitely no. not my gig. And, you know, and I knew that I wanted to get into TV in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And that's when the casting call came up at RT about, it's 15 years ago. It's 15 years since I sat in this building, actually. Amazing. That's it's crazy. A, you, you went for a few jobs here and there. You got a few jobs here and there. But I think really I'd rather focus on your success across the water where you really kind of struck, you found your groove, I suppose, in, in, in many respects. Yeah. Going to London at what age? So I went to London at about 26, 27. And was it overwhelming or did you say, ah, I found where I need to be? It kind of was overwhelming in the beginning because I, you know, I, I worked here in RT for a few years and I quickly learned that, you know, you do, the, the jobs are few and far between, you know, yeah. it's kind of like. Slim pickings. They're slim pickings yeah. and it's really hard to like progress really quickly. And when you're, you know, back then I was like a young, hungry, ambitious, late 20s grafter and, and I wanted to do as well as quickly as possible because yeah. I'd start at late in kind of this career, I kind of think. And when I went to London, I quickly learned that it's as hard, if not harder. And it's all about, like, you you got to get out there and make those connections and meet people. And it took me a good year to get a job in production. But the reason I actually went to London in the first place is because GMTV were looking for a... Um, for presenters yes. to be on uh, their morning show and they ran a kind of a reality competition. So I was part of that lineup. I didn't win, but it made me think this is exactly where I want to be. I was yeah. suddenly thrust into, you know, being on the couch with like Richard Arnold and Kate Garraway in this GMTV studio overlooking the South Bank of London. It was yeah. like this, you know, dream that had kind of just come true. And I was like, this is exactly where I want to be. Isn't it? The, the British have a real love of breakfast television in a way we we just didn't get it here. Yeah. Or we didn't do it in any meaningful sense. When I was a kid, it was TVAM and it was it was a David Frost. And it was Michael Parkinson. I mean, these weren't, uh, you know, second tier presenters. I mean, it was yeah. Anna, Anna Ford and people like that. And right up to this day, as you know, you've got the, 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 the obsession in the last week or two with Holly... And, and Philip. Philip. And you're going, wh wh how does it become such a part of the culture? You're living there. I mean, why are they so obsessed with this story? I think they're obsessed with it because, like, as you said, this morning and and all and the rest of the morning shows, they broadcast across the nation. People's, you know, like sitting rooms and living rooms every day yeah. feel like they're part of the family. Right. Mm. And like with Holly and Philip, you know, they had this, you know, on screen persona of they could do no wrong. They were just the nicest kind of like, you know, like duo. And I think for that to all come crashing down the way it has, has obviously provoked huge, huge public interest. Yeah. And it is, it's, you know, it's, it is kind of sad to see the way it's all kind of come crashing down. But, you know, for someone who's worked in the industry for quite some time, I'm kind of not surprised if I'm totally honest. So why isn't Simon shocked about the This Morning fallout? Look, I worked with Philip um, at the beginning of my career for about a year. I worked on a show called All Star Mr. And Mrs., which was his Saturday night entertainment show. 
He was an absolutely, he is in, in, in my eyes, you know, from what I know of him and having worked with him, a, you know, a very polite, an absolute professional and extremely meticulous with, um, you know, what he does for a living. Mm. And, you know, he was he was he was a joy to work with in, in, in that sense. But I guess the other side of it was, you know, going back even 14 years ago, there was it was kind of common knowledge that um, Philip was in the closet and um, was not open about his sexuality. And then, of course, you know, there was wide speculation and rumours that he was dating a junior member of the the team. Again, this is all speculation. And, you know, uh, to, to know that back then mm. was kind of inevitable. I think that something was going to come out. And unfortunately, the way it's happened now is really, I mean, it's it's... It's kind of sad, but it's it's very revealing in terms of like what was going on. Yeah, and and the behind the scenes yeah. behavior, if you like, and because they're, they're saying it reflects the morning show on Apple TV, they're saying not dissimilar. I uh, know plot lines. It, who knew what? Who who knew? Yeah, and, and like, I mean, it is it's the biggest story yeah. to hit like um, the the UK press in, in a really in long a long time, time. not long since they a royal scandal or something. Yeah. It's, it's that level of it. And now there's you know Holly comes on and says, "How are you?" and "Are you okay?" and now they're taking the Mickey out of her. There seems yeah. to be backlashes against backlashes, and I'm wondering. Well, it's June, you know, it fits the, the, the news cycle uh, or it would it be the same in the middle of, of uh, October or December? Who knows? It's, it's I mean, who, who knows? But I, I, I think it's just it's this is the beginning of, of this um, kind of, you know, this 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 news story. And this I think I think a lot more is going to come out. Do you? Yeah, I, do. About... I think there's a lot more that's going to be revealed. You know, there's a lot of stuff that they're still skirting around. OK. They're still skirting around the, you know, the, you know, when do they meet? What age was said, you know, boy slash man? And kind of what, what's the timeline? Mm. Um, so I think there's going to be, you know, more stuff divulged on that. What I don't agree with, though, is the way that the UK press can just take somebody down. We've seen it with, you know, um, Meghan and Harry. We saw it with Prince Diana. We saw it with Caroline Flack. Mm. And now we're seeing it with, like, you know, Philip Schofield. And I think, um, you know, there needs to be some kind of, you know, systems or, or laws put in place. Because I think, you know, at the end of the day, there is a person on the end of all of these news stories. And, like, he is getting attacked. And I think, you know, you, you probably saw in the interview that he did, he's kind of like, he said, he's like, you know, do you want me to die? Because this is where I am right now. And I think, you know, there needs to be some kind of protection against that because at the end of the day, you know, people's welfare, his welfare is is important. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the British press have a savagery Savage. in their hunting that I'm glad to say the Irish press does not have. Yeah. Uh, and thank goodness for that uh, because they seem to have some class of, of soul that the British press does not have. Um, as aspects of it. I don't yeah. say all of them, of course. Um, and then you've got the double barrel gun of online anti-social media who are who that can be so cruel so and cruel. that adds another layer on top of that so so that's i'm, I'm not trying to uh, exculpate anyone from any crimes real or imagined but i'm just saying that that that's the that's the nature of the public eye yeah um uh, uh, you, you mentioned being on uh working with philip around that time and in london you came out as gay as a gay man at, at one point. How old were you when you did that? You're a little older than I was. Twenty. Do you know what? Do you know, no. So basically, when I was in RTE, yeah, I I was going out with some of my first boyfriend, but I was actually in the closet, 
God bless them. Had I you been going out I with won't. girls before? I'd been dating girls until I was 27. So, I mean, throughout like my entire university career, through enti- throughout my like travels, I lived in San Francisco for summer. I went traveling for a year and a half after uni and I was still in the goddamn closet. I was like, no, I, I look back on that and I'm like, what was I thinking? And had you, at, the risk, at the risk of, of, of overstepping the mark, but had you experimented when you were far, far away? So I had, yeah. I dabbled. Yeah, that's what I'm... I'm I dabbled. Yeah. But again, you know, I was away with all of my friends. There was a bit of dabbling going on, but like I never told anybody. No one? No, told nobody. Well, why? Because I was just still trying to figure out my okay. own stuff. Fair enough. Now, my brother is actually, my younger brother is gay. Yeah. So he came out before me. So he's like, there's six or seven years between us. He came out when he was in first year of uni. And at that point, I had kind of like started my career in RT. And, um, you know, when he came out, I was like, oh, he's come out. I'm seven years older and I still haven't come out. But I was on my own journey. I was on my own path. I was still figuring out my own stuff. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But I look back on that and I think you should have come out earlier. But that was my... That was what I was doing. But you did, right? Uh, but I did. And here we are. And here we are. Okay. Yeah. Simon Atkins from the Ryan Tupperty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, epic movies or epically bad? When is it justified to make a film of three and a half hours or more? Grania Humphreys was answering the question, how long is too long? Martin Scorsese has a new film coming later this year. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon. It's about the Osage people who are indigenous Americans and the cruel campaign by white people to take away their newfound oil wealth. It stars Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone. Now, it debuted at Cannes. The reviews are pretty good, but they all highlight one thing, the running time, because it's three hours and 26 minutes long. Now, would that make you want to go and see it? Or would the very thought of three and a half hours just put you off? 51551 for your messages. Grania Humphreys is the person you hear laughing in the background there, the director of the Dublin International Film Festival. Grania, you've had to sit through many a long film, I'm sure, but three and a half hours, too well, much. Well, I'm laughing because I actually didn't see it in Cannes. I actually saw two films while that was playing. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. It was kind of a twofer. And I also knew it wasn't a priority because it'll be coming out before our festival next year. And I think that's part of it. I love watching long films. Actually, I remember Ryan was talking about Goodfellas and I remember seeing it in the Adelphi where, uh, you know, and that's two and a half hours and loving that, being Mm -hmm. inside that world, that gangster world and loving it and really enjoying it. Actually, this is a very funny part where a guy in the film got so hungry watching them cook in the prison that he went out and grabbed a pizza and came back in to watch the end of the film. (laughs) But I think that's the point about long films is how do you sustain attention for that long without things like hunger, tiredness or, you know, boredom or the to-do list suddenly coming into your mind. And then I think the minute that happens, you're kind of gone as an audience. Mm. If you're Scorsese, though, do you have to or can you just say to yourself, you've got the luxury of saying to yourself, I don't really have to edit that bit out because I am Martin Scorsese and I can get it. That's you've put your finger on it. That's the problem. And, And I think we all would have said that about The Irishman, which is the last film. There is a thing, if you look back through history, that a lot of the longest films have been made by men. Nearly all of them have been made by men who have had final cut. So they can make it as long as they want. And it's all about prestige. I mean, I've seen people have conversations where they go, how long is your film? 150 minutes. How long is yours? 176. Do you know? Badge of honour. It's a badge of honour. It's a sign about how much influence and control you have. Are they thinking about the audience? 
sitting there, coming in out of the rain, going, this looks fantastic. And then after two hours going, God, what will I do for the rest of the evening? I've got things to do. Yeah. I've walked out of films and I know in the back of my head, I've got, that's fantastic. I've now gained an hour and a half of my life back. You know, so I think I think I do think it is a control thing, and I do think it's not necessarily thinking about the audience, but I think the streamers has changed the game. Do, you know? Why? Why do you think that? Because I think there's a couple of things. One is is that the Scorsese film, you know, is funded by Apple. It is going to be seen in a cinema for many reasons, including Oscar campaigns, but ultimately it will probably be seen on a small screen, and that is a place where, as we all know, we can stop them. Mm-hmm. We can stop them and we can make the tea. We can stop them and go out and do whatever we want to do and come back. And I think that's fundamentally changed the way in which we watch films because we can control them. If you're in the cinema, usually and in a lovely way, there's a projectionist who starts it and then it goes. And one of the things I always see in the film festival, which is really funny, is people going, geez, I can't leave. Do you know what I mean? I will miss something if I go to get popcorn or I go to get a coffee or something. The story will keep going and when I come back, something might have happened. So I think that's part of it. Where's the bar? Like the other night, last Saturday night, I was trying to find something to watch and anything that was over 120 minutes, I don't care how good it was, I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's around 120. I think if you break the two hours, you're suddenly, and I know a lot of people seem to cheat. It's like 130 seems to be a lovely way of saying, I can just do it. I can tip the line. Um, I think after about two hours, I stop. And if you think about it, that's kind of around two episodes. If you're watching something, if you're binge watching, it's yes. about two episodes before you probably go, I could watch a third, but I probably need a small break. Um, but honestly, in my head, I think it's got to do with the natural rhythm. And Claire asked Grania about going to see the film Alexander. <laughs> Oh, I love the story. So again, it's back in the old Adelphi, which is kind of like nostalgic. But I went to see uh, I went to see it and there was a couple sitting in front of me and we all did what we all do. You know, you sat there, you're ready, the credits go, the film starts. And then after about 40 minutes, the woman left and I kind of went, well, you know, maybe she's got, you know, she's gone to get popcorn. Maybe she's decided that she needs, I don't know, sweets or something. She didn't come back. And then she came back about, oh, about 20 minutes later and she, well, maybe slightly longer, 30 minutes. She'd gone to Penny's. It was in Sydney. I was in, obviously it was around the corner. So she basically went to Penny's, bought clothes yeah. and for the last half of the film showed her partner what she bought in Penny's. Love it. To the amusement of everybody. It was like, it was moving wallpaper at the end of a room, right? And I found myself completely distracted from poor Colin Farrell and everybody else going, do you know, that, that looks nice actually. I'm thinking I might actually go down to Penny's afterwards. Will it she still be open? That top with that skirt and you <laughs> that could would also... That be great. Yeah. You know, it really felt like it was a communal thing. And I think at that stage, leave. Mm-hmm. You're not in the film watching position anymore. You know, now you are literally, as I said, it's moving wallpaper. But she probably never was. It was probably he who wanted to see the film, but he had to agree to look at the film. That's a different but conversation yeah, than the films that we've watched dynamic. because we have to. Grania Humphreys from today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time. <laughs>